Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Jarvis R. Givens, Assistant Professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and the Suzanne Young Murray, Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. Dr. Givens joins us to discuss fugitive pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson, and the Art of Black Teaching, published by our friends at Harvard University Press in 2021. In our discussion, we chopped it up about Carter G. Woodson, Black educational history, the origin story behind fugitive pedagogy as a term, his journey from grad school at Berkeley to his post at Harvard, and much, much more. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Givens. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, man. It's very early, <laughs> but I'm doing good. Hey, man, I ain't going to lie. When I seen that email that said eight or nine, I was like, nah, we going nine. We we, we going nine. Uh, but no, nah, this is good, man. So first of all, man, congratulations on the publication of your new book, Fugitive Pedagogy, man. How how you feeling about this, man? Like, you here, man. This is this is it. How How, how you feeling? You know, I'm feeling I'm feeling really good. And, you know, the, the beautiful thing was that I just so happened to be um, in California visiting with my family the day of the, at the, you know, the official publication day. So it was wonderful to be able to share that day with them. And a number of my family have pre-ordered books and stuff like that. So because it was my mom's birthday, a, cu- a few of us were gathered at my mom's house. And so it was it was wonderful to share that moment with them. So I'm feeling really good. Um, despite all that's going on in the world right now. But I'm super excited that this work is out and in the world. And I'm looking forward to engaging folks in conversation about it. Hey, man. So so I'm I'm just glad I got in early because I know your social <laughs> schedule. You just got on Twitter, man. You about to have Buku, uh, Last Dope Intellectual Numbers of Followers. Shout out to Dr. Shreese Bird and Steli. Uh, so, I so, don't know about that. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't. I, I can't I can't match Teresa's dopeness. We'll see. Man, look, man, look. Well, hey, there there must be something out there in in the Berkeley waters, man. Shout out to Dr. Eula Taylor, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Shout out to Dr. Eula Taylor, who was my undergrad and graduate school professor. Um, it, and is the reason that I got into, um, you know, doing research in Black studies to begin with. I was a I was an undergrad student at UC Berkeley in Eula Taylor's uh, African American History course. And I was a business major and said, actually, I want to do what she's doing. And I want to pursue this, you know, this in my life. Uh, so Eula Taylor is at the center of all the work that I'm, that I'm still doing. Amen to that. So I, so I hope that uh, no matter when uh, Dr. Taylor is listening to this or someone tells her to listen to this, okay. that, uh, <laughs> that, that she's feeling the warmth of this, uh, of, of the, the radiation of all the love that we're emitting to her right now. So right. Lord yeah. knows all of us need that at this point. Um, so, 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 so Jarvis, you know, I feel, I feel <laughs> yeah. like we, I feel like we brothers out here. So, absolutely, so brother Jarvis, yeah. um, Fugitive Pedagogy is your first, uh, book length monograph 
Mm-hmm. And so you talked about uh, the inspiration from Dr. Eula Taylor, but to dig a little deeper, um, what ultimately inspired you to write this beautiful, beautiful book? Uh, you know, it was it was really encountering the extraordinary and inspiring story of Black teachers, right? Um, and also at the same time realizing how little, you know, we've actually acknowledged and recognized the contribution that Black teachers made to the long Black freedom struggle. Um, in African American history, in the field of the history of education, um, when I when I started to learn more about the work that educators were doing, both you know from the period of slavery to post emancipation up and through Jim Crow, I was just really in awe. I, I didn't go to graduate school to study the history of education at all. I um, I was in a graduate course in my the spring semester, of my first year, and I encountered a kind of passing reference to a textbook written, a school textbook written by Carter G. Woodson. And that's where it started for me. It was just, I became intrigued by the idea of Black teachers in the early 20th century writing curriculum. And it was something about that that signaled, uh, that signaled something about how the, the current frames that we tend to use when we think about the history of Black education uh, really pushed aside the work that Black folks were doing in the context of these very, you know, hostile um, school structures, absolutely. But but we 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 really only attended to the kind of political economic neglect of black schools, right? The separate and unequal narrative. But it was something about this idea of Carter G. Woodson writing textbooks and then seeing reviews of the textbook written by people like Jesse Fawcett, right, in the Crisis Magazine, but also Elaine Locke talking about how important these textbooks were and how widely circulated they were among black teachers. I was like, this is saying something different than the narrative that we tend to tell about the history of black education. And I wanted to get at that part of the story. Um, so that, that that's really uh, what it was. It started with the with learning about textbooks and then realizing that Carter G. Woodson was not the first <laughs> teacher to do that, that there was Lila Amos Pendleton before him. Right. And that there was um, Edward Johnson, you know, a, a formerly enslaved man who also was a, a principal and wrote a textbook as well, right? And so that just started to open up a number of questions for me about who Black teachers really were and and and, and piqued my interest in getting at more about their, their veiled professional world. Um, and then also, after doing that, reading the work of Vanessa Siddle Walker, their highest potential, like, just completely blew me away. It was in that same semester of my, um, the spring semester of my first year, I read their highest potential and the, the way in which Vanessa Siddle Walker, you know, captured the likeness of this r- high achieving black school in Coswell County, North Carolina, um, just resonated with me in a very uh, powerful way. And I decided that this is the work that I wanted to do. And I just kind of went from there. And man, let me tell you, you, man, you put your foot in this, man, like, 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 <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a, like a, like a somebody made like that amazing Sunday afternoon cornbread, man. You, 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 you did it, man. And, and it's, and it's beautiful. And also I, I love the, I love the, not, I not only love the book, but also love the depiction that you have on, on your cover, right? It's just a beautiful setting of just uh, children just sitting and working and, you know, you know, so one of the things I always wonder is like this, the staging of it, but I also think of like, just thinking about the, the, the minds that are working. And the spirit that that you can kind of imbibe from from the cover too, man. And so um, I also feel, speaking of spirit, like there's something in that spirit of Black studies that 
at UC Berkeley, man. That there, y'all, y'all just, y'all just be not even, not, you know, not even turning it out like a factory or anything like that, but just like in the nature, just so many of y'all are just doing amazing work. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had mentioned uh, Dr. Taylor before, but as you mentioned, you were trained in Black Studies at UC Berkeley, and as the as the book shows, and as your own, you know, journey shows. Black studies oozes out of every crevice of the book and out of you as as a as a person and scholar. So ultimately, what does black studies mean to you? Hmm. Yeah. What does um well first of all, thank you for uh the your commentary there. Um I, I really I really appreciate that. Um and I will say that for me, at, one of the first things that I would say is that it became important for me to recognize that there are things that can be known in the world from the experiences of Black people that, that can't be known from any other perspective. Um, and, I, and I absolutely believe that. And I think that um, a lot of the work, and I'm thinking particularly with uh, Sylvia Winter here, who I think is a very important thinker in terms of how we conceptualize Black studies. Um, so that's, that's one of the kind of first points, like a starting point for me that I think is important. Um, but that also, it means, you know, doing the work of Black Studies for me has to do with drawing on the rich intellectual, cultural, and political traditions of Black people, um, where they have always been reflective about the world and and producing knowledge, right? And to take that legacy seriously, even when it doesn't fit into any of the, you know, particular forms of disciplinary decadence, uh, to borrow a term from from Lewis Gordon, even when it doesn't fit neatly into any of the, of the kind of parameters of the traditional disciplines that we tend to think of in the academy, is that we have to think um, in more. We have to be more malleable in our thinking in order to try to get at the complexity of Black life and to kind of excavate what it has to offer for how we um, how, how how we can know the world, right? And also how we think about um, trying to support Black folks in struggling against oppress- the oppressive conditions that we find ourselves in. Um, and so that those are, you know, some of the main things. But I always think about, you know, when I was in graduate school, one of the essays that stuck with me most about thinking about the intellectual project of Black studies is an essay we had to read by Manning Marable. Um, when Manning Marable talks about Black studies as descriptive, corrective, and prescriptive, right? That kind of three-pronged approach to understanding the intellectual work of of black studies is that it's about being descriptive about the kind of texture and important elements of black life and the experiences of black people that accounts for their perspectives and and you know and how they understand the world and their experiences but also corrective right because understanding that so much of the the oppression that black people experience has come at the hand you know is the result of centuries of you know systems of knowledge production that have de- debased black life that have justified enslavement that has justified the kind of criminal criminalization of black people and the condemnation of black folks right um so corrective in terms of speaking but i mean you, you're in a, in a history department right there's a and this is at the center of so much of what Wootton was doing was kind of speaking back and refusing so many of the norms in traditional academic disciplines like the field of history Right. So black studies has always had that kind of corrective, um, uh, you know, uh, calling or, uh, or, you know, that that's that's been required of black studies scholars. Right. But then also the prescriptive element is that it's not just producing knowledge 
for the sake of producing knowledge, but it's always supposed to be done um, in the spirit of trying to support uh, folks in, you know, in real, in, in the kind of, in, in real ways, right? It's supposed to be work that can kind of, you know, be offered to folks as a resource to think differently about uh, our experiences and our journey as a people, right? Or to preserve uh, the legacies of, in, of the things that Black folks have done to struggle against oppression and maintain their own human dignity in the process and to offer that uh, to, you know, folks in the contemporary moment to say, this is a legacy that we have that's important for us to take care of and to also put into practice in, in our lives when we see fit, right? Um, but also to try and address real political economic um, conditions that Black folks find themselves in today, right? So it's it's those that three-pronged approach that Manny Mirabel laid out that I think, you know, in a very, uh, uh, you know, specific way, I think lays out some of the core aspects of, what I, of my orientation to Black studies, right? That descriptive, corrective, and prescriptive um, framework that Mirabel gives us. Outstanding, man. Outstanding. And, and I just cannot wait for people to to listen to this part of the interview and so that they can truly understand, like, obviously, like, from the question, but why Black studies is so important and also why, um, and I'm, um, I'm super excited to get to this part where you see where Carter G. Woodson comes into this story as well. So I'm, I'm, I love that part of the book and I know, I know, and, and, and I'm gonna say it one more time, I know that, uh, folks are going to really enjoy that part. So, um, speaking of enjoyment, some things that, uh, I, I think many people like, but some people really hate and that's the writing process. So I'm really, I'm, I'm also interested to know about this. Um, so the process by which writers write often changes over time. Um, so, so since completing your PhD, uh, I believe in 2016, has your writing process changed at all? And in particular, tell us uh, what your writing process was like for fugitive pedagogy. Yeah, um, I, I would say that my writing process did change, and for a number of reasons. One, I think I so I wrote my dissertation in in isolation for the most part. I, I felt like it was really me, like sitting at this desk. It, it was one particular desk in the graduate lounge um, in the in our department. Um, back at Berkeley where I was, I was always there and I was writing or at the desk at my house or at like a cafe. And when I say in isolation, not that there weren't other people around, but I don't necessarily know that I was as intentional to build a writing community. Um, when I was trying to get through the dissertation, uh, process as I was when I became a postdoc. Um, but so that's, that's one thing that I would say is that I, was working with a lot of colleagues who were also in the process of trying to revise their dissertation into a book when I was a postdoc. And we were intentional to form a community uh, to offer you know, feedback regularly and to support one another as we were navigating just that liminal phase between being a, a doctoral student and also being uh, a latter faculty, right? Um, we were, many of us were postdocs at that time. Um, and then even into the first few years of being an assistant professor. Um, but to be, but then the other thing that was super important about the, the the writing process and how it changed is that I had, you know, I had a lot of new material to work with as I was revising the book. There were so there were things that I found at the end of the dissertation process that I just couldn't include for practical reasons. And many of those things that I found, I was super excited about, and I really wanted to get to and incorporate it into how I was kind of revising. 
the the process. I mean, I mean, sorry, revising the manuscript, and that really helped kind of um, energize me. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, rethinking the arguments that I was making in the book. Uh, so it, and but and also thinking with that material in a new phase, right? Having completed the dissertation um, and having to uh, create that community of scholars where we were supporting one another and to kind of talk out loud about what it meant to pull apart the dissertation and then take pieces of it to kind of create this new project that ultimately becomes fugitive pedagogy. Because if you, you'll know, well, you know, didn't read my dissertation, but the language of fugitive pedagogy does not come up in any, uh, well, it's there, but it's not in, 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 not in any explicit way in the dissertation. That's something that doesn't come up until the book. And that's because of the kind of stripping a part of the dissertation and engaging with the new materials that I found toward the end of that process and creating something completely new, right? And that was a very, that was a process. I actually didn't get tired of writing the book. I, re, I, re, I, I enjoyed it, <laughs> right? I really enjoyed the process and learning and thinking with these teachers that come up in the story because I just continued to be inspired by all that they did. No, that that's that's remarkable because yeah, I, I now that you mentioned, I, I wondered a little bit about that about where, um, you know, not only the origins of future pedagogy just generally, but also the origins within your own work, uh, uh, in your from your dissertation to now. And so this is, you know, this is just remarkable, man. And, and I'm I'm truly truly excited, uh, for for people to read the book and uh, and people are. I could tell because like we, like I told you, uh, like I sent to you a, a while back, Streets was talking about this book on Twitter, man. People like, you know, shout out to uh, Michael Anderson, uh, PhD uh, student. Um, I believe he's at UCLA and there's a, a graduate school of education. And so, you know, he was like, bruh, you got it. I'm like, yeah, dog, I got it. <laughs> like, we got it, bro. Um, so, so, you know, shout out to that brother right there. Uh, also a, a loyal listener to, to the podcast. So got to shout that brother out. Um, and so you just talked about, you know, how the, uh, manuscript, uh, uh, writing process, you know, really was one where you, you know, really had that collective of people that were really helping you to kind of, you know, take the dissertation out and add it in ways that would make it what future pedagogy is, um, so in particular, what, to be more specific here, what groups of writers, thinkers, and scholars really helped you bring future pedagogy to life? Uh, yeah. So I would say I have a core group of colleagues that I met early on in graduate school through Mellon. I, I was a Mellon fellow in undergrad. I was in the first cohort of Mellon Mays at UC Berkeley. And, you know, it's because, you know, Eula Taylor and another professor of mine, Robert Allen, said that you should consider this and maybe consider thinking about becoming a professor. I thought I wanted to be an attorney, but, <laughs> you know, you know, I was like, they showed me that there were other options, you know, right. Uh, yeah. And I'm so grateful for that. But I was I, be, um, I joined Mellon Mays when I was in undergrad. And when I was a graduate student, I made it a point to go to a lot of the writing seminars and groups that they created to support Mellon fellows you know, matriculate through graduate school. And there was uh, a group of, you know, friends, one in particular, I have to say, Raisa Williams, who's a really good friend of mine, um, who's currently a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, you know, we've been really good friends and thought partners since we were completing undergrad. And um, and as someone, we pretty much wrote our dissertations, though, in very different places, uh, you know, 
while supporting one another through that process because and, and similar to that, you know, there's a couple of other friends of mine that come along the way, Sharice Burton-Stelly being one of them, but also um, I think about a really good friend of mine, uh, you know, Joshua Bennett and Ernest Mitchell, who I met when I got here to Harvard as a postdoc, um, that were super, were very supportive, but that took time, we took time with one another to become familiar with our own, our distinct intellectual um, projects and the kinds of questions that we were asking. And it's really good to have colleagues who are also friends to your mind, you know, who know the, the development and the kind of evolution of your thinking around certain things that you can kind of talk to and bounce ideas off of. And I'm just grateful that I've had a circle of people like that who are willing to kind of sit on the phone or to share, you know, you know, material that we're drafting um, and give feedback on and to talk about the way that you were thinking about this a couple of years ago versus how you're thinking about it now, right? That sort of stuff. And there's other, also folks I've met through like the Ford community. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's, folk, it's people like that, right? Um, people who are colleagues, but that also become more than just colleagues in a professional sense, but who are, I would say, you know, um, you know, friends, friends to my mind in a way that is very important. And, to, you know, to borrow, uh, you know, from Tony Morris in the way she talks about that, I think. And also my high school teacher used to say that all the time. She would say, <laughs> you know, we're here to we're here to be friends to want to. I'm here to be friend, a, a friend to your mind is what my high school English teacher used to always say um, because she loved Tony Morris. Yeah. Yo, that, that's that's fire. And, and it's so great just thinking about, when, you know, going back to teachers here. How those things that those that teachers say when we're growing up, mm-hmm. we remember. And not only Absolutely. remember, but really like in some of the best and the worst ways, those are the things that stay with us. Um, so so it's great to hear that your your high school teacher, you know, is saying things or said things that are coming literally up in like the book making process mm-hmm. years later, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's just Awesome. So shout out to all the all the teachers out there like this book. Absolutely. You know, you know, uh, what, what did KG that, that, say when he won the championship? You know, this is, you know, or, or LeBron rather. Cleveland, this is for right. you. And, and, yeah. and if teachers, this is for you. <laughs> exactly. Right. No, that's that's kind of like that's like the shadow book to this. It's like that's the, 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 the shadow book to fugitive pedagogy is like all the wonderful black teachers that I've had my entire life. I had black teachers from the time I was in preschool up and through high school. Um, overwhelmed, all black high school, I mean, excuse me, all black teachers from preschool through eighth grade. And when I was in high school, the overwhelming majority of my teachers and school administrators at a, at a school that was predominantly black as well were, were black educators. And many of them operating in this sim, in the same tradition. Many of them having been taught in the Jim Crow South by black teachers, some of them having gone to HBCUs, right? Um, that doesn't make it into the book, but in my mind, a friend of mine, you know, Imani Perry, uh, really pushed me to think about this when I was writing it about, you know, when I talk about the black student as witness, right, the things that Woodson saw his first teachers do, all of these students that are in chapter six, witnessing the subversive practices of their educators, you know, she was like, you know, you might also want to consider and allow that to kind of shape how you're approaching the writing of this project, how your own experiences um, with black teachers your entire life is really informing the way in which you're navigating the archival materials, how you're looking and naming things in the story that uh, you're able to call out because of your own, um, because of the ways in which it resonates with particular encounters and experiences that you've had and understanding the kind of shared vulnerability and, sh- and, and relationship between Black teachers and Black students. 
having grown up and been taught in these predominantly black schools with all black educators um, who were operating in, 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 in this tradition, right? Even if we can recognize it was very different circumstances, right? Me growing up in Compton, California and attending this small black parochial school, right? Um, in the 90s and early 2000s versus the experiences that the teachers who taught me would have been experiencing in Jim Crow, Arkansas, Louisiana, North Carolina, Mississippi, which is where the majority of them came from. Um, but yeah. No, nah, and, and look, I didn't even like growing up in the suburbs of Orlando, like I didn't have many black teachers until I got to college at FAMU. And so, oh, wow. yeah, like, let me see, to give you an example, I only, the first black male teacher I had, like teacher, teacher, like mm-hmm. not gym instructor, you know, because gym instructor was kindergarten, Mr. Bryant. Mm-hmm. And I, my first black male teacher was uh, Dr. Darius Young, my, uh, my uh, intro to African-American history professor mm-hmm. um, at FAMU. And, yeah. and now we are as thick as thieves, like, and he's helped me along the way with, in the profession. Yeah. But it also may, reminds me of uh, an experience uh, with someone that I know that you know, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Teresa Perry, who oh, yeah. <laughs> during my master's program at Simmons College, now university, the only black professor I had in that, I guess, two and a half year process. And mm-hmm. I think it was a race, resistance and resilience class. Mm-hmm. Like, you remember when you said, uh, Dr. Eula Taylor, you know, being in that, it was like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. She was the first person to really make me think National Park Service is a part of my process, but it ain't going to be the thing that I end with. Right. Right. And and it's because of this class and like and so reading her work, like, you know, the the real abonics debate, I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. oh, (laughs) like, you know, though I didn't go black education route, it was still black language. Right. 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 That was just Mm -hmm. like, yo, Mm -hmm. yo. And so. You know, and, and my friends know I say this all the time. Like, I feel like I need to put this into, like, a, my own, like, speech down the line. But, like, I didn't know who Dr. Imani Perry was. I knew who Dr. Teresa Perry was, right, first. <laughs> right. And, so, <laughs> yeah. and then everyone's like, yeah, you know her daughter Imani? I was like, nah, but let me go look it up. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, what? Oh, oh, well, well damn. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So just, just the beauty and the power and the vitality of Black education right. is just so... It's just so amazing. And so, like I said, like, I'm not a, a historian of education, but I, I will say that when I first saw your book right on uh, Harvard University Press's website and I saw the first word fugitive and then pedagogy, I was like, hold on. I thought Jarvis worked <laughs> on like, like what what's happening? Right. Because mm-hmm. I, I, after reading your book, I was like, oh, Sam, I don't really know as much about Woodson as I thought. Right. <laughs> Which I think was one of the best parts. So right, as a historian of slavery that I am. Like I said, seeing the phrase future of pedagogy, future of pedagogy rather, caught my eyes and ears from the first time I saw and heard about your book. So can you talk to us specifically, right? You talked about how you got to the process of future pedagogy with the different mm-hmm. folks, right? Post mm-hmm. um, uh, a dissertation. So can you talk to, to us about where you the, like where does the theorization of fugitive pedagogy really originate? In, the, in this time frame for you? Yeah, so it, so let me tell you about where, so it, because there's, there's a point when I became much more explicit about naming it um, uh, in, the, in the process and framing of the book that came after uh, Evelyn Higginbotham pushing me, 
to, to justify why I was using the language that I was using. Um, and I, I'll, I'll tell a little bit about that because I'm very grateful for um, her mentorship early on in terms of helping me think and be more intentional about laying out why I'm using the language that I'm using and why it's important. Um, and not and not allowing that to just be in the footnotes tucked away, but actually foregrounding the project. Um, but I will say that one of the like one of my early articles when I was finishing up graduate school was about black teachers representations of Nat Turner and textbooks that they wrote. Um, I became fascinated when I was, you know, writing my dissertation. I was reading the text, all these textbooks that they wrote. And I was like, it's like, damn, it's like they, the way that, that, that they're talking about slave insurrections and runaway slaves as these kind of folk heroes in these textbooks and these curriculum materials that they're writing for black for students and particularly with black students in mind just seems so powerful to me especially when we look at the complete absence and omission of those stories in the official and required curriculum right so when i saw things in textbooks like the one written by edward johnson who talks about nat turner who was undoubtedly a wonderful character right and who talked about how he was a leader among his people right or who talked about um in very elaborate fashion, it, it, even the details of this of the slave insurrection and the number of white people that were killed and the fact that they did not sanitize these narratives in the ways in which they were representing these historical um, you know moments was that was powerful for me because it complicated so much. You know, we tend to think of black teachers as the kind of archetype of the politics of respectability, and I'm not saying that that does not necessarily come in. That that actually is a part of who black teachers are. But it really challenged the kind of um, limiting frames that we tend to have when we think about teachers, right? And this showed me that their politics were much more malleable, right? That Nat Turner actually, in their mind, was a respectable figure <laughs> in the ways in which they were conceptualizing it and talking about it and presenting it in the context of these textbooks. And Nat Turner wasn't the only example, right? You have these teachers that are writing textbooks for Black students in the Jim Crow South, and they're spending pages talking about maroon communities in Suriname and in Jamaica, right? And in, and, in, uh, and in Brazil. And all of that signaled to me that there was, in, in the minds, in the intellectual, the, the curricular imaginations of these Black teachers, that there was a way in which these stories of Black fugitive life offered important resources for Black students living in the context of Jim Crow. That it was something about these stories and this, the kind of these folk heroes right, that were central. So that, that's what I would say was the first thing, is looking and, and, and noticing the representations of fugitive slaves, like, in, and in Woodson's textbooks, you know, in one part of the book, I just create, I just reproduce some of the images from the textbook, right, of these uh, fugitive slaves, like, um, you know, literally images of fugitive slaves running away, right, literally images of Harriet Tubman with a shotgun in textbooks, that were being offered to students, right? Um, so that was one thing. But then, also, uh, I so there were a number of moments from just the history of, uh, you know, slavery and the way in which literacy operated in that context, where we have to think about black literacy, uh, you know, the you know fugitive literacy among enslaved people in the context of slavery, right? Heather Williams writes about this beautifully in her book Self Taught, but. For me, it was thinking about that particular line in Frederick Douglass's um, text when he says, 
when, when Master Hugh Auld lays out his philosophy of slavery and he, he's scolding his wife for teaching Douglas to read and write. And he says, you know, if you teach him now to read and write, you know, this, be a, this being accomplished, he'll be, quote, running away with himself, right? So the way in which um, literacy and education was linked to Black folks running away, right, or perhaps might, might even think about the general strike more broadly, right? I, I think that it's important to think about these kind of fugitive practices leading up to what Du Bois conceptualizes as the general strike, um, you know, during the Civil War and the ways in which education and literacy are central to that experience as well, right? Um, that became super important to me. Um, and, you know, but then on top, of, you know, on top of that, the way, you know, uh, John Hope Franklin, if we read his, you know, uh, book on, what is it? Uh, is it Rebels on the Plantation? Rebel, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, when he talks about, you know, the, a, a number of, you know, uh, fugitive slave ads listing the fact that this person might be literate, might have a past with them, right? And in the ways in which there are these um, uh, moments where education and literacy are always at the heart of uh, what, we're, what we might think about as Black fugitive life in the context of slavery that became important to me. And then when I learned that the first Black author textbooks were written by fugitive slaves, right, I was just like, I, it, it just became so important for me to create, to identify this narrative line between the work, you know, what fugitive slaves were doing in the context of slavery, what it means to think about the literate slave as akin to the fugitive slave, right? When we think about a slave learning to read and write as a slave running away with himself, right? We think about that from the Douglas text um, and saying that there's a relationship between that and Tessie McGee reading from a textbook that's talking about that legacy that she's reading on her lap secretly tucked away underneath the desk, right? So the ways in which these practices of escape and hiding um, and fugitivity are, you know, consistent throughout the politics of Black education, both in slavery and post-emancipation. And I wanted to figure out a way to talk about that and understand them in relationship to one another. Um, and, you know, initially I was just using that language, um, but because it was in the back of my mind, it made sense. But then, you know, Evelyn Higginbotham was saying, you know, you need to justify why you're using this language of fugitivity um, as opposed to just talking about it as, you know, subversion, because Black people are always doing, you know, being subversive, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, no, but then Black teachers themselves are explicitly talking about these things, right? They're naming schools after fugitive slaves, right? We have reenactments. Students are reenacting, uh, you know, the Haitian Revolution or, you know, and they're celebrating uh, the stories of fugitive slaves like Phyllis Wheatley, I mean, not Phyllis Wheatley, uh, Sojourner Truth um, and Harriet Tubman and, uh, you know, and Ellen Kraft, right? Um, but then also teachers are explicitly using the language of doing work underground, right? When, for instance, it becomes illegal for them to be members of the NAACP, right? You have educators in Alabama saying things like, we're just going to have to, you know, operate and take this work underground, right? So explicitly naming how they're having to navigate power in these uh, covert ways, right? Which is something that Black folks has always have always had to do, right? This is folks like, you know, that folks saying, got one mind for me, another for the master to see, right? So I wanted to attend to that um, in a very explicit way. And I said that this is something that we needed to understand in order to make sense of all of this work that Black teachers were doing, both in terms of the the intellectual work of writing new scripts of knowledge, right? That begins with, you know, slave narratives and textbooks by fugitive slaves, 
but also the methods that black folks were using to transmit that tradition, right? The, the secret practices that they, were imp that, that, that they were employing to transmit this tradition of fugitive pedagogy as well. So it's both the intellectual work of thinking about the textbook, but it's also the concealing of the textbook on the lap underneath the desk. And fugitive pedagogy is about that, the, 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 that expansive range of uh, escape practices that Black folks are employing in their pursuit of meaningful education. Man, <clears throat> let me tell you, I was, uh, man, I was getting hyped. Getting hyped like oh. I was reading the book again. Um, <laughs> because, because, you know, how often do we hear about, you know, the whole Texas uh, textbook debate, you know, mm -hmm. about, you know, the power that they have in terms of the production of, of textbooks throughout the nation, or just, you know, how every single year, someplace around the country is reenacting, like, not the Haitian Revolution, but daily slave life, right? right. Trying to right. depict that, right? And so, or reenact that. And so, one of the great parts that you just li uh, laid out for us is how during the era in which the, your book is situated, Black folks are reading, like, unsanitized, unbridled. Like, this is straight facts up in here talking about um, what our people did, right? <laughs> uh, Nat Turner, right? Like, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, the list goes on. And and I loved that um, Dr. Dr. Hickenbotham, like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how... Uh, how strong that push was, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, a, like, but, but, but whatever that was, I'm glad that she did because yeah. what we get, I think, is a book that is one that in I, terms I got, of, I got, I got to tell you a story here too. Okay. Because one of the, yes. one of the things that was exciting I, that was exciting for me to go back and share with her was that I found a quote from her father as a teacher. Oh stop! Uh oh. <laughs> I, I was like, like you know, uh, Professor Higginbot, I want to show you this. Uh, her father was. Come appears in the book. I don't know the the teacher. His name is uh, Albert Indy Brooks. That's Professor Higginbotham's father, who was a teacher in Washington D.C. Actually, um, was the assistant principal. So you may be familiar with John Bracy. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, he was an educator he, uh, that taught John Bracy when he was a student in Washington D.C. Uh, wow, segregated schools. But there's a quote when her father is talking about how black teachers have to walk a tightrope, <laughs> um, and how they have to set up their own kind of community uh, uh, committees on education because school districts and the kind of white school authorities can't be trusted to do what's in the best interest of the Negro, right? Um, and then he uses the language of, of talking about um, Harper Council Trenholm in Alabama and how he operated underground, how he took his operations underground when it became illegal for the organizing that he was doing with Black teachers in Alabama to be done out in the open, right? So that language of underground, you know, of, of working and operating underground, that's explicit language from teachers like, you know, uh, Evelyn's father, uh, Albert, uh, Albert Brooks, but then also Madeline Morgan in Chicago, who was a black teacher affiliated with the Sala, but she, you know, wrote a Negro history curriculum as a resource for teachers to use in Chicago in the 1930s. But like in her lecture notes, also explicitly talking about when she's talking to teachers about the legacy of slaves and the, the, the language that she uses uh, is stealing a way to learn, right? Mm. And offering that as an important legacy for the teachers that she's talking to, to, to situate themselves in and to understand um, when they're thinking about the politics of the work that they're doing, right? So, you know, when, you know, when Evelyn pushed me on the language, it was like, yes, I need to go directly to 
the text and the archives and what Black teachers are saying and where are the moments that I can pull from their language to justify why what I'm calling fugitive pedagogy is necessary to kind of, you know, um, capture uh, this, I shouldn't use language of capture, but to reflect and to express this legacy, right? Um, and so it was the things in the textbooks, but it's, you know, the school naming practices after fugitive slaves, but also this explicit language, like the, the examples that I just gave you, that became important. And it came from that pushing um, and that, you know, sincere and meaningful engagement with the ideas and the work from folks and mentors like Professor Higginbottom. And and she probably ain't even real. She probably was like, you know, saying obviously what she said. But then, well, okay, what was her reaction? What what was that like? Like, tell us about that. Like when, when you when you end up telling her that, uh, she she just laughed. She, she we had we, the conversations were great. She uh, she was like, I I never read that particular passage from you know my father before. But she 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 uh you know um she. Uh, she just, you know, kind of laughed and appreciated it, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and part of it has to do with so much of her investment, both in Asala, right, because of her father's work in the organization, but also um, the support that she offered for the project as well, because she understands it to be important, because she knows it to be true from her own life. Her having started out as a teacher, but also her parents having been teachers in schools as, as, as well, and also teachers being so central in her book. Righteous discontent, right? Yeah. Nanny Helen Burroughs is a character that comes up in my book, um, but she was a teacher and one of the, a close associate and close friend of Whoopsie. Mm hmm. Yeah, oh, man. See, see, the, oh, man. Look, you, you can see this is this is why I love the new this is, medium. This is, this is this is black studies, man. Look, this is, this is why black studies is important because it's also about this is like this is real black people in real life, but it's also encountering them in the archive. But it's like, how do we think across? You know, well, at least for me, it's like it's not just about the kind of it's 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 both about the academic work and engaging with um, the archival materials. But it's also about the kind of relationships that I have with um, black folks in real life, both the teachers that I had, but also resources like, you know, um, senior mentors who have personal ties to many of the people that we're writing about who can help us think about this stuff in, in ways that we don't necessarily just get access to when we only focus on the kind of, you know, documents and historiography, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and I'm happy and grateful that black studies allowed me to, to think and to, um, and to operate and move in that way. And, and, and they, they helped you, they, they got you there. And then yeah. we're excited to see, uh, uh, where you go now from here, um, mm -hmm. as, as they say. And so, um, you know, during research processes, right. You, you, you talked about, really the, the stakes of the project and the different interlocutors you've had. And so along the way, what would you say during any part of the process, right? Research or, or wherever have you, um, did anything actually surprise you that you found along the way? One of the biggest surprises, and that was a major turning point in my thinking, is the story about Tessie McGee and um, and that narrative that I opened, that, that I decided to open the book with that's not in the dissertation. Right. That's something I found and came across <laughs> um, just when I was in the process of about to file my dissertation at Berkeley. <laughs> and I remember wow. when I found it and I and so I have to also have to tell you again, this is related to the last point, how I came across that story is there is a member of Asala who has a lot of these old videotapes um, and Robert Robert Harris, who's, um, you know, a former president of Asala. 
and also a retired faculty member from Cornell's um, uh, African American Studies program. Um, you know, he said, you know, you should talk to. He put me in contact with uh, Barbara Spencer Dunn and said she has a lot of these old videos that might may they may or may not be of use to you. And um, I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. And so I reached out to her when I was in the process of finishing my dissertation. And she said, yeah, I think you would like some of them. And we interviewed some people that knew Woodson personally, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I fly out to, to D.C. to look at these materials that she has in these are materials that she set up in her the basement in her church and just gave me these videos. And there's like a there's like a TV there for me to like to watch them on and stuff like that. And one of the videos is Jerry Moore, you know, talking about the, his teacher, Tessie McGee, at a church service. <laughs> Wow, Woodson, uh, Woodson's birth, a Founders Day event, and it was a very short narrative when he talks about his teacher Tessie McGee and this one particular encounter that he recalled, and he shares that story about his teacher um, reading from Woodson's book on the Negro that she kept on her lap underneath the desk, and he talks about someone coming in and the ways in which she, you, you know, used this text and Woodson's materials to kind of critique the required curriculum from the Louisiana State Department of Education. And why that left an impression on him even before he would meet Woodson when he moved to Washington, D.C. years later. Um, and so finding that video, finding that videotape from what felt like a testimony service <laughs> um, from someone in Asala that, you know, Robert Harris pointed me in the direction of and say, you, should, you know, you should talk to her. She might have some things that could be helpful for you um, was just completely eye opening. And it was like, you know. Seeing that in action or placing that picture in my mind that of how Woodson's materials were being used in classrooms um, let me know that there was so much more to the story that I needed to tell and that I needed to talk about to even appreciate the intellectual work that Woodson was doing through the association in publishing textbooks and producing new curriculum materials, decorations for classrooms, and partnering with teachers, right? Is that looking at the embodied practices of Black educators, right? How they were physically navigating constraints within the context of the American school became so much more important um, in order to appreciate the intellectual contributions and things that are on the written page in, let's say, the Negro in our history or Negro makers of history um, or in Black literature that teachers were using. And I needed to be able to talk about both of those things in order to understand the um, these kind of phenomenological aspects of black schooling and, and black educational life. And that scenario that I found um, in that video recording was the, really a turning point for me. And then I started to look more into that stuff. And also it, it helped me to notice other similar accounts in the written, you know, the, the historical trans archives and stuff like that, that I have been engaging with in a new way um, because of the way that Jerry Moore told the story and how it affected him as a student. And that resonated with me um, because I could I could imagine and I could see what mm -hmm. this must have looked and must have felt like. Right. Um, so that was very that was very important um, for me. And then I found another recording of an oral history of him through the history makers when he's telling a similar a similar narrative of the story um, in more in an extended way. Um, and so I just started to dig more into that and I started to look into more oral histories of black students from this period bearing witness to the things that they saw their teachers do, you know, doing. And that became very important for me to kind of, um, you know, put some flesh on the bone, right, around, around the narrative in some important ways. 
No, that that's amazing. And and, and I love that you're using a myriad and, and diverse array of of documents and, and also using them in ways that I think are pro- going to provide a lot of space for other scholars to come in and build on your work, which is mm-hmm. ultimately what we all want to do, right? We want to open up the space and let other people, you know, go forth and do their thing. And so, um, and, and you early on in, in your, in your book, point your readers toward why Carter G. Woodson is important to the tradition of fugitive pedagogy. Uh, but you also show in vivid detail uh, the community that helped build and sustain the tradition, right? So, so why did you think this point was important to unpack for your readers to really show the the full ecosystem in which helped build uh, Carter G. Woodson uh, up? Because you know, once again, right, as someone who's done a little research on uh, on Black Appalachia, this brother mm. right here. Carter G. Woodson, he's straight up out there. So you know what I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm, I, I was uh, I'm, 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 not, I'm personally not from there, but some of my yeah. research ha- has gone in that direction. So mm-hmm. that was a part that I was actually more, uh, really fascinated with personally on, on your own work. Yeah, um, you know that I, I appreciate that question because it's something that I struggled with a lot in doing the, the book, right? Um, but but I'll say this: sometimes it's important to take thinker-centered approaches for doing intellectual history and, you know, um, social and cultural history and stuff like that. But other times it's important to emphasize the contextual elements and relationships that give form to the thinking and the work of particular people. And in order to understand Carter G. Woodson and the legacy that he left behind as the quote-unquote father of Negro history or the father of Black history, if you will, requires us to understand this broader world of Black teachers that he was a part of that made a Carter G. Woodson possible, right? Um, Because for me, that communal aspect to the work that Woodson was doing had always been a part of his life, right? His first, I would think of his first classroom as being the community of Civil War veterans that he worked with, you know, after laboring in the coal mines, who, who who relied on him to read Black newspaper publications and Black texts to them after long days of work because they themselves were, you know, illiterate, but that because they wanted to engage with ideas, right? And and how how that became a very important part of Woodson's own thinking about the ways in which Black people, whether they were literate or illiterate, were repositories of knowledge and how they could speak truth to kind of to power in important ways, right? And give their account of what happened, whether it be during the Civil War or during the time of slavery, right? Um, and he and he carried that with him right into the halls at Harvard and University of Chicago. Right. That became important for him to kind of to refuse, you know, claims by his professors that black people had no history. Right. Because he saw this right in his early educational context with his first teachers who were his formerly enslaved uncles. Um, mm-hmm. So to understand Woodson's legacy as a historian or as an educator in my mind, required expanding the aperture to think about that broader world that he was a part of. Um, And to say that he was operating in a tradition that did not begin with him and that did not end with him, right? He expanded on it and offered very, made very important contributions to it. But fugitive pedagogy, and this is one of the things I ended up having to argue with one of the reader reports about, it's a separate 
story that we don't necessarily need to get into. Mm-hmm. But you know, I you know who, that was trying to push me to kind of make it seem as though what I'm the the legacy and the tradition that I was trying to write about in the book is something that was created by Woodson. And I don't think that 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 wouldn't have done justice to the story, right? Which is why for me it was very important to open with an ordinary school teacher in a rural school in Louisiana doing this operating in the tradition of fugitive pedagogy. And Woodson is there via the textbooks that she's using, right, to say that this is about a much broader world and a networked world of Black educators operating in a tradition um, that they inherit, right? Um, and and that that became important for me to do, to make the intellectual, you know, the contribution to like intellectual history and Black social history that I wanted to do, is that it had to be more uh, taking a thinker-centered approach. Um, some of the chapters do that, taking Woodson seriously in his, his own ideas. But I'm always, I'm always invested in for this particular project in situating him in the much in the world of in the world of teachers that he was a part of that made the work he did possible, um, and that became really important to me because I think it has important lessons for folks that I'm hoping will, will, will look at this history and be inspired by it um, and see that there are some elements that might, might be useful for how we're thinking about education and black educators and you know critical education today. For sure. And and once again, shout out to Harvard University Press for putting this book out because I'm I'm just, you know, I, I interviewed, uh, um, uh, you know, someone who you mentioned uh, a little while back, uh, Josh Bennett, mm-hmm. about his book last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, man, just there's so many great books. And, you know, it's why I, I, I love what I do because I get to read across <laughs> a wide berth to help inform me. And if for no other reason, too. Hey, you know, books be expensive out here in these streets. And so, you know, I'm building right. that big, big old library like you got behind you. So, right. <laughs> yeah, man. So, um, you know, and, and, and one of the talking about legacies here, uh, one of the lasting legacies of uh, Karji Woodson um, is Asala. Um, and so, you know, along with um, the Journal of African-American History, also known as the Journal of uh, Negro History, um, and so the association played a major role in really popularizing um, Black history, along mm-hmm. with many other things. And so uh, yet, as you say, historiographically, and I'm quoting you here from page 64, uh, much less has been written about the central role of school teachers and their pedagogical insights in the building and sustaining of the organization, end quote. Can you detail to the listening audience the central role played by Black school teachers? In the organization's early history, and why did you? Why do you think that it was so uh, understudied? Yeah, um, I'm still unclear about the last part. I, I'll say I'm still I still don't know why uh, we haven't attended to the work of teachers in the field um, uh, in, in a way that kind of you know does justice to all the contributions that they made. And, and so many of the legacies that we inherit from them. I'm, not, I'm still I'm still trying to think with that one. I'm working through it in an article, to be honest. And I end on that point in the book um, as well when I'm talking when I talk about the origin story of Black studies. Uh, so I'll say that part. But going to the first part, there's so many there's so many things to point to. One first and foremost, one of the things I wanted to say in this book is that you know we love to talk about Carter G. Woodson as you know a, you know the, the second African-American PhD from Harvard in history. And that's important. That's very important. But I always say Woodson was first and foremost a school teacher. That he was 
from from you know before he got to Harvard, while he was at Harvard, and after that point, he was in he was immersed in a world of black school teachers who had a very set of set of established professional practices, um, and uh, you know that he was operating within and that he benefited from in terms of the work that he would go on to do. Um, so that's one way, right? Is one position Woodson as a school teacher, right? In addition to the way that we think about him as, uh, as the kind of famed historian. But then also identifying the debates that black teachers are engaging in in the years leading up to the founding of the association that Woodson is a part of, right? So for me, it was important to, for instance, in 1915, you know, we think about the founding of the association in Chicago um, in that September. It became important for me to look at the kind of debates that Black teachers in Washington, D.C. are engaging in around uh, the lack of attention to Black life and culture in the curriculum. And they're writing, uh, you have Roscoe C. Bruce, who is uh, you know, an educator in Washington, D.C., who's writing to the district and saying, inciting Woodson's book that is just published that year, The Education of the Negro Prior to 1861, and John Cromwell's uh, work as well, saying that you know, we have teachers who are also putting out that are publishing work that is important for us to engage with. And, and we think that it's important for us, for our students to study more than just things about white people, right? And they're, they're saying this in very explicit fashion, and they're organizing these professional development seminars where Woodson is going to be leading, you know, uh, workshops on the study of civics in history uh, for the Negro, right? Du Bois is giving a presentation to teachers around, you know, sketches and notes on teaching Negro history to teachers, right? And this is stuff that is happening in the months, you know, in Washington, D.C. and being planned before Woodson even goes off to Chicago and found the association, right? So what I'm trying to say is that the association for, you know, the study of Negro life and history is become becomes an institutional embodiment of a set of intellectual practices and 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 desires that black teachers have been doing and operating in well before it's 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 established in September of 1915. And we could even trace it very explicitly just by looking at the place where Woodson is at and what he's doing um, surrounding this particular time period, um, right? So there's that. But then there's also the first issue of the Journal of Negro History. School teachers, people like Jesse Fawcett, Mary Church Terrell, right? Um, and write essays for the inaugural issue of the Journal of Negro History, right? Woodson is also funding that from his salary as a teacher. Um, the, you know, he, in the conclusion of the, you know, the, the, the notes in the last, uh, you know, that last, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, that first issue, he's talking about the legacy of Booker T. Washington, right? Because Booker T. Washington had just recently passed away, right? Um, but not only that, in terms of financial resources, Black teachers were a large uh, portion of the dues-paying members of Asala, um, and they were... It, you know, regular attendees at these annual meetings that that the association is having. Many of the locations for the meeting places for the, the annual meetings are in black schools, both, you know, colleges and also, you know, local high schools and middle schools and stuff like that. There are all, always ways in which students in local schools are incorporated into the program of the association meetings early on. And especially this becomes important 
during the 1930s after Woodson becomes, you know, blacklisted among white philanthropists and, you know, and they refuse to offer him any significant resources, the majority of the contributions in the fundraising efforts are coming from black teachers, right? So black teachers sustain the organization during the depression period. Um, and Woodson is explicit about this. And when you look at the executive council of the organization during that time period, many of the leaders that are on the executive council are people who are also like the president of the Virginia, you know, you know, colored teachers association or Mary McLeod Bethune is the president who was a former president of the national association of teachers and colored schools, right? Mary McLeod Bethune is the president of Asala for the last 15 years of Woodson's life. And that was extremely important. Um, Woodson recognized that because of the way in which Bethune was positioned both in the larger kind of Black politics of the time, but also among Black educators who were so important. Um, you know, John, John Hope Franklin has this account when he attends his first Asala meeting. I think it was in, it was in sometime in the midnight. I want to say it was in the either early 40s or late 30s when he attends. It's, it's in Petersburg, Virginia. I do know that. Um, but he says one of the things that shocked him most is how many school teachers there were at this meeting, the first meeting that he attended, right? So it wasn't just an organization about people with PhDs because there were very few Black folks with PhDs, but you had school teachers there being engaging in this process as intellectuals, um, even as they weren't formally trained historians. And it was important because they were doing the work of translating that information, as Bethune put it. She said, we're in need of more translators of the scientific knowledge that's being produced by the association. And teachers were doing that work. Um, you know, um, and it's important to recognize that, uh, at least for me. And it's very clearly uh, there. Um, but I would say that it's not just that they sustained it, but that the organization comes into existence precisely because of tr the traditions that are that teachers um, transmitted, right? And that Woodson benefited from. And that um, he, because he inherited a tradition that he was operating in that uh, gave him the insights and the, the resources to think about why such an organization was important. And he was well positioned to be able to act on those things. And and what you just brought up is really an amazing institutional history of Asala that, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we can't take for granted that people uh, prior to reading your book and uh, listening to this interview would have already known. Um, because like, they're, like I said, like reading a lot of the stuff that you detailed just now was like, oh, snap. And so just thinking about the blacklisting in the 30s, right, which is the same time that Du Bois is writing Black Reconstruction. And so kind of just looking at that particular 1930s moment of, of uh, uh, you know, intellectual, um, you know, and I wonder if this is the app use of, uh, of Charisse's term, uh, intellectual McCarthyism in, in a way, too. Um, just to kind of think about just like what happens when Black folks are just trying to do their work with Black folks at the center of the work and what could possibly happen um, as a result of that. So I really appreciate you for um, for for that, too. And and to actually return to Black Studies for for a moment um, and to keep Karji Woodson at the center, you cite uh, Karji Woodson as pretty much a forefather of Black Studies. Um, what does citing Woodson as such mean for how we learn the origin story or origin stories, maybe, mm -hmm. of <laughs> Black Studies uh, uh, more broadly? Yeah, I, I would. So I would say it's important to do that because I believe that the the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History is a key institutional forerunner 
for Black studies in, in the way that we would think of it in terms of, it, of how it becomes implanted in the American university in the late 60s. Um, I, I think that the institution, the, to borrow Alden Morris's language, the, the association operated as an insurgent intellectual network, right? Um, which is the way in which um, Alden Morris in his book on Du Bois and some of the work that Du Bois was doing at Atlanta University, you know, he gives us that language. But because it became an important space for gathering for Black intellectuals during the time period, right? Black folks that were not able to go to other formal academic conferences in many ways. Um, but it also became an important training ground for the and mentorship for, um, you know, new generations of scholars and things like that. And France, uh, uh, Francille uh, Wilson writes about this in her book, The Segregated Scholar in Important Ways, that I think is important. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm not the first person to point to Woodson and, you know, Negro History Week that becomes Black History Month as an important model of, you know, early Black studies that becomes institutionalized and formalized, right, to borrow language from Imani Perry, thinking about Black formalism. Um, but, you know, Hortense Fillers also says very, things very similar in interviews that she's done around the history of Black studies. Pero Dagbovi, in an article worked through, um, said some of these things similarly. Um, I just really was interested in not only saying about the the association, but also particularly teachers that are operating and sustaining the association are, are an important group of actors um, to, to think about and to name explicitly for us to understand that genealogy. And Woodson is an important leader in the, in the context of that story and obviously creates an institution that becomes an important hub for that intellectual activity and work that, um, that, that's, that's being done. And so I can't think of any other organization that would be an institutional forerunner to Black studies outside of the association. I can't think of any other organization. And, and when we think about the Journal of, of Negro History and Journal of African American History, like there is no other, uh, there's no other model for us to really look to. That's not to say that there weren't other things happening, right? But in terms of the one that had the kind of broadest uh, impact and um, and that was sustained and that op and that had the broadest reach, right? And the reason it has such a broad reach is because of teachers, right? And because of it, because it was intentionally linked to this networked world of Black teacher associations um, that really allowed the ideas and the in the intellectual work to to move and to circulate in important ways. And yeah, so that that's part of the reason why I position Woodson and the association in that way. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine any. But yeah, that's. I'll be curious to see hear people's thoughts on it, but it was shocking to me to, and I know I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure why we haven't thought about it in that way before. Look, and and you gonna spark some some uh, discussion, and I'm sure some some further debate as we hope and pray that Asala is in person at some point in the next year or so, or however long it's gonna be. So whatever that is, I'm looking forward to it. Is it it'll be. Whew, that's going to be a spiritual experience, I'll tell you. Um, so, and the other thing too, um, you know, just thinking about uh, your work and just making me think a lot about, you had mentioned the Journal of Negro History. I was just surfing the the, the archives of, of the Journal of Negro History in particular, probably about a month ago. And goodness gracious, like, they're so, like, they're so rich. Like, like, and I'm not saying this as a surprise, but just thinking like, 
when I think about what people ultimately cite and how far back people can go, there's almost nothing that you can write about in the expanse of African-American history that you can at least provide a citation from specifically the Journal of Negro History, right? Not not of African, but specifically of the Journal of Negro History. And so I'm just calling all the grad students, everybody out there, please go, just, just, just go surf. Just, you know, if you get some time over the summer, just surf. You're going to find a lot uh, because the journal is just so, so rich. Um, and speaking of rich, right, the intellectual riches of black teachers, they're, they're amazing. So combing your faculty website and learning about the various projects you have been in and are involved in uh, shows me how much really black teachers uh, matter to you in, in, in your entire uh, being. And so in your own words, and you've touched upon this in different parts of your answers, but I'm more focused here. Can you tell us why black teachers matter so much to you? And is there a particular story uh, or project that you want to maybe highlight for the listening audience that advances, you know, this this love and adulation that you have for black te- uh, school teachers? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think I mentioned earlier on the fact that I had black teachers my entire life and they were some of, you know, and still to this day, are some, I keep in touch with a number of them. Um and, you know, I didn't realize that that was rare until I got to college and met people who said that they didn't have any black teachers their entire life. And I was like, I, I just didn't. Um, and I guess many of my relatives who didn't attend this, you know, this, you know, black parochial school in Compton or even the public high school that I went to um, in Watts, that just so happened to be, you know, a very, it was, I had great experiences. Um, and so all of the narratives around, you know, uh, black student underachievement, and uh, not having black teachers and all the literature on that stuff that I encountered in college and then in graduate school, it was just so foreign to me uh, because of the experiences that I had. And so that's part of it um, is because I know the importance of black teachers and the, the work and the ways in which they, and I'm not, I can't make any centralized claim and say these are all black teachers. It just so happened that I, I, I had teachers who were operating and approaching their work in a very, with very explicit, with a very explicit political orientation to what it meant to be a black teacher, um, that that you know that that I, you know, seem to have encountered. Um, but then there's also so much work that we have in terms of empirical data from the contemporary moment that shows why black teachers are important, but uh, for all students, but particularly for black students in terms of the the just how just having one you know black teacher by the time a student is in third grade, the kind of the you know the the increased chances of them actually going on to college right and things like that or in persisting right through and, and graduating right in terms of the number of the the statistical um, uh, data and stuff that we have on that so we know that it's important for black students to encounter black educators and that black educators are more likely to um, recommend black students for gifted and honors courses. Um, and white teachers who are over 80% of the profession are more likely not to recommend black students for those things, even when they're performing at the same level as their white peers, right? There's so much data that we have on that. And it just, it continues to um, affirm why it's important for us to diversify the teaching profession. And I would say that it's important for us to diversify the teaching profession, but it's also important for us to equip black teachers 
with resources about the intellectual and the professional legacy that they are right, the rightful inheritors of. Um, and I, because I think that these are the stories of these teachers historically are very um, inspiring, right? And as Black educators today are trying to carve out their own professional identities, it's important to have this historical context to think about the tradition that they can choose to operate in um, and the resources that they can borrow from this legacy to put into practice in their own, in their own work. Um, so those are, th those are some of the things that come to mind when I hear that question. Um, and it's just because the, the history of Black teachers is so, we, we have, we've yet to really completely scratch the surface of all the things that they offered, right? And that they, that they gave to us. Um, and this is coming out for me when I think about the project that I'm working on currently to try to preserve the records of colored teacher associations with this project called the Black Teacher Archive um, that's based at Harvard and that I'm partnering with Imani Perry on. We got some support from the Mellon Foundation to preserve, to locate and digitize the publications of colored teacher associations, which were the professional organizations of Black teachers before they were forced to merge with white teacher associations in the 1960s. Um, and when we look at these monthly and quarterly publications, you see Black teachers you know, commenting on various different political and economic issues of the day. They're, they're poets, right, writing poetry. They're, they're talking about, they're writing essays about what to do in the absence of, you know, um, you know sufficient textbooks and curricular materials for, for English and language arts instruction and stuff like that, right? They're uh, exchanging strategies that can be circulated to people in other areas about how to go about organizing to raise funding to modernize their school buildings and things like that. They're commenting on uh, important court cases that are happening that have implications for them as a professional group, but also for Black education writ large. Um, and we see them operating not just as, you know, we not just as practitioners, right, in the way that we think of practitioners today, but they were also intellectuals, right? They were, and I use the language of scholars of the practice, right? They're, they're both thinking about what they need to do in very practical ways in classrooms and in, in terms of organizing in communities, but they're also very reflective. They're also reading and sharing information that's coming out from Black scholars um, during the, the time period and what that means for the work that they're doing, which is why you see people like Du Bois um, and, you know, uh, and Carter G. Woodson showing up, giving the keynote addresses at their meetings uh, that are taking place across the country. Or, you know, Black, I, I think about this one review by, that's written in a teacher's journal, when W.B. Du Bois in 1934 is in New Orleans, Louisiana, and he's giving a speech to teachers in this packed high school gymnasium, if I recall correctly, and it's teachers and students. And he's talking about this new project that he's researching that will become the book Black Reconstruction the following year. And he's, and he's talking uh, to, the, you know, they have some, some pieces of the speech that he gave there when he's talking to these teachers. But then you see these teachers going back and writing an account of it, publishing it in the newspaper. But then when the book is published the next year, they also write a review of the book in the publication, right? So I think when we go back and pull and, and think about that legacy, that's a new model for what it means to be a Black teacher. Um, and it forces us to think about 
um, black educators in much more expansive ways and absolutely to think about this question of black study as central to the work that they were doing. What an amazing story, because we know how black reconstruction really was not ballyhooed about, you know, for much longer, right? Much further past the 1930s and the 1940s. So to hear that black school teachers in New Orleans are like, and, and students are getting like the pre right 1934 and then when the book comes out that they're building on that to then write that's that's that yeah. is mind-blowing and and in yeah, the review she's there's a, there's a teacher she's a pre-service teacher as well so she's going through a teacher training program that's writing this review and she says you need to read this book and take it as your own right <laughs> as as you're thinking about your you know your practice and in the review that she writes um for the book it's a short review but it's clear that it's, you know, it's a clear tie to this meeting that happened the previous year and it's being offered um, and other to other educators and they're being encouraged to, to read it. And we see that also in terms of the way that Jesse Fawcett, um, when she's when Jesse Fawcett is working with Du Bois with the crisis, the, the book section and, and the books that are being identified as important reading for uh, for children. Right. We know that Jesse Fawcett is also a teacher. She's not just working for the NAACP. She's she, her orientation to thinking about that is coming from her own work as a school teacher, right? When W.B. Du Bois is planning the Pan-African Congress in, in, in France, right? Jesse Fawcett writes to her former high school student, Rayford Logan, and said, who's just so happened to be in France, says, you need to go and meet with Du Bois and help him and do whatever he needs you to do while he's there in terms of organizing this conference, right? Because Rayford Logan, who we obviously know Rayford Logan as an important historian, was a teacher at the high school that Jesse Fawcett and uh, Carter G. Woodson taught at, right? So there are ways, like these stories are just, it just opens up um, so many so many questions about um, the in intellectual genealogies of different thinkers, um, right? So many of the scholars that were reclaimed when black studies became institutionalized in the late sixties were school, either school teachers themselves or were taught by black teachers, right? So there's no way that we can appreciate People like Angela Davis and Sonia Sanchez, Nathan Hare, right? Um, without thinking about the teachers that cultivated dreams and inspiration in them. And many of these thinkers say that themselves. If we read Angela Davis's autobiography, she talks about the teachers at Tuggo Elementary in Birmingham, Alabama, right? Same for Sonia Sanchez. Nathan Hare, who's the first director of the Black Studies Department at San Francisco State, he talks about his teachers at the Toussaint Louverture elementary, middle, and high school that he attended in Oklahoma, right? Um, so that, that intellectual history for Black studies and, when we, and having to place teachers in that early part of the history, it's so easy to make the connection, right? Um, and, that's, and, and, and I think it is important for us to do that because it's instructive for what Black studies needs to be doing and thinking about today. Because I feel like there's a, you know, unfortunately, there, there's very little engagement with teachers and K through 12 education today in the field of black studies. And I think that's something I feel like we're, we're missing the mark um, on, on, on that particular point. Well, look, considering the people that I know that listen uh, loyally to this podcast, <laughs> they're going to be sitting in their cars or on their jog or on their whatever they do as they listen. They're going to be like, damn, you're right, Jarvis. Let me go email you right quick. Let, 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 let's talk. You know what I'm saying? So hopefully that's a, that's a way to engage, man. And so Absolutely. 
Yeah, man. And so, and so on our last question, man, this, this is starting to become my, like my, my finishing question and I love it. Uh, so, um, as I'm moving into a new spot, I'm always thinking like, okay, how do we, how do we make the spot look, uh, and, and feel great. So returning to, to writing for a moment before we close up shop, um, I love asking my favorite historians and writers, you're part of this now, of course, about their own uh, uh, writing space. So if you had all the money in the world, money ain't a thing, and you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get, possibly? And lastly, you know, what, in particular, like, like tell us, like, like, how are you organizing this space, right? What do you have in it? You know, what books are essential in this particular space? We know some people like having multiple thinking spaces. So ultimately, Jarvis, paint the picture for the people. Paint the picture for the people. <laughs> Man, uh, let me see. Uh, so one of the things I would say is I really enjoy writing and working in community. I like working collaboratively with other people. I think that's when I thrive. And I, I just feel like I really feed off of the great and brilliant work that so many of my colleagues are doing. So I would imagine that it has to be something that has space for, you know, for me to gather with other people, whether that's a big table, right? It, with space to accommodate, you know, room and space for other people to kind of come and sit and think, which is why I like, you know, I would always have writing group and partners that we would meet at cafes and usually at cafes that has a table for us all to gather around, have our space when we need it, but to feel, you know, you know, um, to feel the presence of one another as we're doing the work. Because even if we're writing about different things, there's a, there's a shared set of politics, usually with, when it comes to the folks that I write with and that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think about the layout of the space would have to be, you know, uh, would have to lend itself for that kind of communal work atmosphere to be possible. Um, I would say if we're talking about, you know, artwork and uh, and things like that, I would... I mean, there would be, I mean, pictures of so many people on the the walls. I mean, I, I would think about, you know, photos of ordinary aspects of Black life, right? That I always just get joy from looking at. Um, I was, you know, back at home with my family and there's so many old photos that feel so, that feel less staged than so many of the photos that we're inundated with all the time in the current moment of social media and stuff like that. But like, you know, I, I was looking at this photo of so many people from my family who are no longer around and they're playing, they're sitting at a table playing cards in my grandmother's living room in Compton. And that's a photo that I, I decided to bring back with me and I just framed it and put it up in the living room. But things like that, um, that really speak to the heart of who I am, the people that I'm always thinking about when I'm doing, you know, when I'm writing and doing my work. Um, and that can, you know, that can be up in, in the space and a constant reminder of that, that remind me of that. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say in terms of books. I mean, there's so many books that I would feel like I would want to have around me. Uh, I really, uh, I mean, Toni Morrison's writing is amazing. And there's so many, there's important parts in the book where I've kind of, uh, where Toni Morrison shows up, uh, sometimes explicitly, sometimes not explicitly, uh, because I think that there is a way that, so I, I, I don't even want to get into that because I know we're towards the end, but I would say Toni Morrison and those texts would be there. Um, there would absolutely be, um, uh, there would be, uh, writing, the writings of, you know, the, the textbooks of Carter G. Woodson, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, 
and you know the the work of Ida B. Wells, you know, would be there also, who was also a teacher, and I love you know always you know saying that as well, who was a member of a Black Teacher Association, mm-hmm. um, right? Uh, and and you know also James, people like James Weldon Johnson, who were operating in multiple traditions in terms of the political organizing work that he was doing the scholarship that he was producing, but also, you know, the work he did as a teacher, right? These people who I think embody the corrective, descriptive, and prescriptive elements of Black studies, who I think really, you know, model the spirit of that, their work would be around me as reminders of what it is that uh, we're supposed to be doing. Um, and for me to, you know, think about and, and draw inspiration from. So those, those are some of the things that come, that come to mind. Uh, Good deal, man. Well, Jarvis Givens, man, it has been a pleasure, man. Uh, we were talking before about the first time that we met back at uh, <laughs> AIHS uh, 2018, yeah. Brandeis right. University. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who knows Boston, you know that that ain't Boston. That's a little, <laughs> a little, little, you know, you got to take the commuter rail to get out there. Right. Uh, and, and and I did it, man. And, and can always say that that was a formative experience for me. Uh, for a number of different reasons. And one of them, that was uh, the first time that we met, man. And so um, yeah. it has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And y'all, if you've gotten to an hour and 25 minutes and you still don't know who we're talking to, well, you about to find out. This brother is Dr. <laughs> Jarvis R. Givens, author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson, and The Art of Black Teaching. Published literally like if you're listening to this uh, later this month in April, you're literally listening to it like a day after its publication date from Harvard <laughs> University Press. So please, please, please go support them. And if you can, please go directly to Harvard University Press to purchase it, if at all possible, to go and support them. They are publishing some amazing work, like one of his uh, interlocutors, Dr. Joshua Bennett, who was on last year to discuss his amazing new book published from them as well. And if you like this podcast, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, please, please go and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And so y'all, I'm your host of New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil. Until next time, y'all, over and out.